0: Right now is 6 o'clock, and welcome to WORT's local news for Monday, October 30th, 2023. I'm your host, Sam Swartz.
1: And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. In tonight's news...
0: Tomorrow, an Assembly Committee meeting is is holding a public hearing to discuss a bill that would change the rules for write-in candidates in general elections.
1: Madisonians are preparing for tomorrow's Halloween festivities.
0: A Dane County supervisor wants to make sure that the Henry Vilas Zoo can raise enough money before they break ground on a new project.
1: And in the second half, a wildlife biologist reacts to the DNR's new wolf plan. The anniversary of the Greensboro massacre is this Friday, and some crime dramas, new and old, are on the big screen. This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines.
0: A Dane County judge issued an order on Friday blocking the state legislature from removing election official Megan Wolfe unto the judiciary, makes a final determination on the legality of the Republican effort to recognize, to not recognize her appointment. The judge said the decision was informed by a desire to maintain stability in the state's election administration, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew and Assembly Speaker Robin Voss have issued confusing statements about the arguments surrounding the reappointment of Wolf, at times contradicting each other and their own lawyers. Under advisement from State Attorney Josh Call, Administrator Wolf has said she will not leave her post until a court tells her to do so.
1: Governor Tony Evers issued a short statement on social media today calling on the state Supreme Court to declare Wisconsin's electoral maps unconstitutional, reports Channel 3000 News. The move comes after the court officially announced on Friday that it had voted to accept a case challenge challenging the legality of the maps, which are widely regarded as heavily gerrymandered to favor Republicans. The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments for the case on November 21st.
0: The number of work permits issued to children under the age of 16 has increased rapidly over the last three years to more than 35,000 such permits issued in 2022, according to the Department of Workforce Development. The spike in children seeking work permits coincides with a a legislative push by Republicans to deregulate child labor with a bill bill designed to scrap the work permits for 14 and 15-year-olds passing the state Senate earlier this month. The fees from the permits go to child labor law enforcement and complaint investigations, which have been on the rise in recent years, reports the Capital Times. This year, a sawmill in Florence County paid nearly $200,000 in federal fines following the death of a 16-year-old worker under what the Department of Labor called oppressive child labor conditions. Currently, the work permit costs just $10.
1: A new lawsuit alleges that a lockdown at the Waupun Correctional Institution has created inhumane conditions after it has lasted for more than seven months. The lockdown, which has been in effect since March, includes round-the-clock confinement to cells, denial of family visitation, violation of dietary restrictions, denial of needed health care, and denial of access to the law library, according to the lawsuit. An attorney who filed the lawsuit said that a goal of the suit is to have the judge send a receiver to the prison to assess the conditions independently, reports the Capital Times. Meanwhile, the lockdown continues, with similar restrictions in effect at other prisons in Wisconsin, including Green Bay Correctional and Stanley Correctional.
0: The Wisconsin State Senate is considering a new bill that would expand the number of roads in the state that are desi- or designated for timber trucking that exceeds 80,000 pounds. That's according to the Wisconsin Public Radio. Advocates say that the proposal, which would add 11 new routes for heavy timber trucking, is necessary since short-line rail services have dwindled in recent years. However, increases in trucking volume can cause roadways to rapidly deteriorate, increasing maintenance costs, and road degradation.
1: The Vilas Zoo has asked the Dane County Board to expand its capital borrowing as part of the board's budgeting process, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The move comes as the zoo prepares for its accreditation review by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums next year, which is critical for its ability to apply for grants and remain in good standing. The zoo's aging facilities have caused it to relocate its penguins and its giraffes in order to be in compliance with animal welfare standards, and it hopes the new funds can go to address needed facility upgrades. But Supervisor Yogesh Chavla has introduced an amendment to the budget conditioning the county's support on a number of factors. More on that later in this show.
0: A class at the Madison School and Community Recreation's new Westside facility has children's grades has children grades three through eight sewing squishable stuffed animals. The fiber art class, which has students choose cute designs for small stuffed figures similar to those on the internet, is a popular offering at the newly expanded facility, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. People interested in programming should check out the Madison School and Community Resources website for offerings. And now onto today's top stories.
1: State Republican lawmakers have introduced a bill that would prevent people running for office from registering as a write-in candidate. While other states have similar so-called sore-loser laws in place, the bill aims to prevent write-ins as a backup plan for unsuccessful nominations in a primary. WORT News producer Faye Parks has the story.
2: In Wisconsin, candidates who fail to advance past a primary can still register as a write-in candidate. That means write-in votes for that candidate are officially counted by election workers on Election Day and separated out from other write-in votes. Write-in candidates have registered in the last two mayoral elections in Madison. A handful have also registered in recent elections for Dane County Supervisor, Madison Alder, and Madison School Board. Last fall, a prominent statewide example of a write-in candidate was Adam Steen who narrowly lost to Assembly Speaker Robin Voss in securing the Republican nomination to represent Racine in the State House. Steen, who was notably endorsed by Trump, continued his run as a write-in candidate for the fall election, hosting unconventional campaign events, like flinging a Robin Voss effigy with a trebuchet. Despite that, Voss went on to win the general election, with nearly 73% of the vote. Now, Republicans in the state house are seeking to prevent a similar tactic in the next election. Earlier this month, Representative John Mako, a Republican from Ledgeview, introduced a bill that would change write-in rules for general elections in the state. He says that this is a nonpartisan bill that seeks to make ballots more straightforward for voters. And that clerks all over the state informed the text of the bill.
3: Constituents were complaining how confused they were. We realized that one of the things we could do was to make sure that it was easier for people to discern who was actually running.
2: The bill text states that candidates who fail to secure the nomination in a primary can't register as a candidate or officially campaign as a write-in. Representative Mako says that's not an uncommon rule.
3: Very few states allow a candidate to skip around like we do.
2: All candidates must fill out certain forms and get signatures from their constituents to prepare for an election. According to Representative Mako, it's unfair for candidates to recycle those signatures if they continue their run under a new banner.
3: I run as a Republican. A Democrat will not sign my nomination papers. So why would we allow the nominee to change courses and use those same nomination signatures. Those nomination signatures would essentially be void.
2: The bill wouldn't prevent voters from writing in candidates. However, non-registered write-ins are rarely differentiated from each other and are usually counted together in a single group. Jim Verbeck is Madison's deputy clerk, and he says there are only a couple exceptions to this rule.
3: Only registered write-ins would be counted. The only reason in which we would count a non-registered write-in is either if there is nobody listed on the ballot and it's only write-ins, or if there are more seats
4: than candidates listed on the ballot.
2: According to a 2014 article from Isthmus newspaper, most write-in candidates in Dane County are for cartoon characters and sports figures. The bill is in an assembly committee on campaigns and elections and will get a public hearing tomorrow morning. A Senate version of the bill is also in committee and on schedule for a public hearing soon. Representative Mako says that he hopes to obtain support from his Democratic colleagues.
3: I hope folks would look at it as a nonpartisan bill. It's certainly not intended to benefit one side or the other.
2: This isn't the first time Republicans have changed the rules for write-in votes. A 2014 bill signed into law by former Governor Walker required clerks to only keep track of write-in votes for registered write-in candidates, saving some poll workers an estimated 30 to 40 minutes on election night. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks.
0: Tomorrow is Halloween, and though there's chilly winds and possible snow in the forecast, in true Wisconsin fashion, of course, trick-or-treating is still on. WORT reporter Charlie Bieloski went out to the streets today to ask people about their Halloween plans.
3: What's up everybody? It's Charlie
5: out in the streets of Madison and today I'm going to be asking folks what their Halloween costumes are going to be
0: for tomorrow. My name is Isaac Wilson. My name is Jacob. My name is Jack Severin. My name is Paul Lehrer.
2: My name is Olivia.
0: Do you have any Halloween plans, like what, uh, what kind of costume are you going to be wearing? I don't really have anything necessarily planned out for Halloween. I mean, I did go with a couple of friends, and we just kind of all uh, wore a bunch of hockey jerseys together and just kind of pretended to be like a hockey team, I guess. So um, it wasn't anything too uh, spectacular, really. I have seen some good Halloween costumes walking around town and such like that. Uh, I think my favorite one I saw was a couple's costume where there was uh, Blue's Clues and Steve. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was probably the most creative one I saw, and
3: it would be something I would consider uh, uh, ripping off for my own, uh, potentially, down the road one day. I I did wear a banana costume this last weekend, but I'm going to be going into work for Halloween, so I don't got nothing much planned.
5: Uh, I used up all my fun this weekend, unfortunately. I don't know if I'll be going out, but if I get roped out. We were raving grannies this weekend. We were all dressed up, me and my boys. That was fun. Put a little dress on, these glasses, um, a little bandana, a little pearl necklace. We had fun, but I don't know three days in a row gets to you I've got to focus on school now at this point
4: yeah so I was in Milwaukee this past weekend for Halloween but probably my favorite costume from the past is uh, a bunch of friends of mine went out as disgraced athletes so I was uh, Lance Armstrong we had Brett Favre a whole list of again disgraced athletes
2: I do have a costume as pretty low effort this year all i got were some black gloves and a witch's hat off of amazon and then the rest of my outfit's just going to be all black and i'm going to be a low effort witch
0: what do you think of halloween do you have any final thoughts on the matter yeah i mean it's certainly a fairly interesting holiday it isn't my favorite personally i'm a little bit more of a thanksgiving guy myself so yeah it's really really great if you've got kids that want to be able to dress up and stuff like that so be
3: safe out there have fun It's a cool, cool time to dress up and, I don't have fun.
4: I have a big sweet tooth, so my plan will be hang out at the house with my dog and uh, eat as much candy as I want.
2: You know, I'm excited this year because a couple of my friends just bought a house this summer, so I can actually go over there and help them with (laughs) trick-or-treat. I'm a kid at heart, so I'm excited to hand out some candy tomorrow night. (laughs) Go
0: Badgers, that's all I can say.
1: It's now 618 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: County Executive Joe Parisi's 2024 budget proposal is making its way through the amendment and approval process. As WORT has previously reported, Henry Vilas Zoo is requesting at least $9 million from the county to fund their Heart of the Zoo project, which would include a new indoor-outdoor enclosure for the giraffes. This afternoon, Supervisor Yogesh Chavla of Madison's Near East Side spoke to WORT news producer Faye Parks in anticipation of an amendment he will introduce at a committee meeting this evening.
2: Thank you for joining me, Supervisor Chavla.
5: Yeah, it's great to be here.
2: The county board is still in the process of reviewing County Executive Parisi's 2024 budget proposal, which is his last before his retirement in the spring. One of the more unique items concerns funding for Henry Vallis Zoo. So they're looking to expand and retain their certification from the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which is up for review next year. What are their main funding requests from the county?
5: The big funding request from the zoo is $21 million for the construction of the Heart of the Zoo giraffe exhibit. And there's a couple of different funding components to that. One is existing funds that they've already raised. One is a new $4 million capital campaign. And then the balance of that, which is approximately $9 million, that is a capital request from the county board to borrow that money. We're reviewing the totality of that entire request. And I have an amendment that I'm going to be presenting tonight to the personnel and finance committee surrounding that.
2: There is more to this story about the funding. The zoo's leadership underwent a number of investigations from sexual assault to hostile work environment allegations to accusations of animal mistreatment. You recently told the State Journal that you have reservations about funding the zoo because of that history. So can you tell us more about that?
5: Yeah, you know, I want to protect the county here because we're taking on a lot of risk with this project. The project, uh, the Heart of the Zoo Giraffe exhibit, has a $4 million capital campaign, and those are donations from a yet-to-be-initiated fundraising campaign. I think it's going to be very hard to ask donors in the community to contribute to the zoo when the director of the zoo is under such a large cloud of investigation. Actually, today, the director of the zoo has a revocation hearing for their probation in the state of Washington. So the victim in this case is actually got a per diem to fly out there, stay the night. This hearing is going to take uh, several hours. Who knows what the results of this hearing are? This is a court proceeding. We have no idea what's going to happen in it. But to have the director of the zoo unable to perform some of their core responsibilities and... Still under supervision for, quite frankly, their their embarrassing behavior that not only embarrass themselves but the county and the zoo. That is a very serious concern. So we need to protect the taxpayers and the and the people of Dane County. And obviously, we want to keep the giraffe at the zoo. It's very popular, but to build this $21 million facility, part of this resolution says there's gonna be a capital campaign to raise $4 million. So we need to ensure that that will happen and the best way to do that is through a specific budget amendment which I've authored along with Supervisor Rick Rose.
2: So from what I've read, the county did conduct an investigation concerning the sexual assault allegation and did not find any serious wrongdoing. although they did settle with the accuser. With that in mind, are your reservations concerning the ongoing case in Washington? Is that where you're most concerned moving forward?
5: Yeah, if you read all of the court documents there and also, you know, the zoo director while this case was happening sent a series of very disturbing texts which maybe they considered to be a joke but I considered to be very serious when asked by somebody if they needed anything, they asked, they said that they maybe needed a hitman or a hit woman and using that type of language during such a serious investigation and a a serious situation that not only affects themselves, but affects the entire county as a whole. I find that kind of language and particularly that kind of judgment to be unacceptable. I don't see how there is any way where you could justify using that type of language.
2: When it comes to this amendment, is it not within the county board's jurisdiction to request this woman's resignation? Is this the only way that you can protect the county by amending the funding?
5: Yeah, so the county board sent a letter to the county executive, which was signed by many county board supervisors, asking for the termination of the zoo director. The county executive refused to terminate the zoo director and stands behind the zoo director, despite this unacceptable behavior of sharing a hotel room with a subordinate, excessive alcohol consumption at an event where they were representing Dane County, very questionable judgment and behavior it's very surprising that the county executive would stand behind this behavior and not give the county an opportunity to move forward. And this represents a pattern of poor judgment, not only by the zoo director, but by the county executive as well.
2: Moving on to this amendment that you are proposing in tonight's personnel and finance committee meeting, what exactly would this amendment entail?
5: So the purpose of this amendment is to protect the county This amendment says that they have to raise $4 million prior to any construction of the Heart of the Zoo giraffe exhibit starting. They can still proceed with the design of it. Prior to starting construction of it, that $4 million has to be raised. And what this does is this puts some safeguards around uh, Dane County's contribution towards this exhibit. My hesitation is that I think they're going to have fundraising challenges with their capital campaign just because there's such a cloud of controversy around the zoo. So I want to make sure that the county is protected and that they must raise the money that is identified as part of their capital campaign. And then this just makes sure the county isn't on the hook for everything. Because if we start construction on this and then all of a sudden they're unable to raise the money that they said... That they needed to raise, then they'll come back to the county and they'll be like, okay, we need to borrow additional funds. So, you know, it's standard in a lot of these contracts and arrangements. The county enters into lots of arrangements with, for example, the city of Madison, other municipalities around here. This just clearly sets out the boundaries and requirements of who's responsible for what.
2: Essentially, the plan is that the zoo would fundraise $4 million. The county would fund about $9 million of borrowed money. Is that correct? If everything were to yeah. go to plan? And then
5: there is like a, the zoo has already done some fundraising in the past. So they have some additional funds they can contribute from past fundraising campaigns.
2: But right now, they would need to raise $4 million in order to reach their budget needs.
5: Yeah. So what they did is the zoo... They had a fundraising arrangement with the AZA. That arrangement was terminated a few years ago. There was a lot of discussion and controversy around that. So now they are going to work with a vendor, a third party. Uh, That vendor would be running the fundraising campaign. So there is an RFP out for that vendor now. And then they would work with this third party to do this fundraising campaign for that money.
2: If your concerns come true and they struggle to raise that amount of funding, the county could be on the hook for up to $13 million of borrowed money. Is that right?
5: Yeah, I mean, what what this amendment says is that the construction will not begin until they raise this four million dollars so you can still proceed with the design of it and while it's being designed capital campaign will be underway for it and then prior to starting construction my concern is i just don't want the construction of the exhibit in the house to begin until we have all the funds in place from all the partners
2: so have you spoken to fellow committee members or fellow supervisors about this amendment and what sort of response have you received
5: I co-authored this with Supervisor Rick Rose, and tonight at the Personnel and Finance Committee, it'll be presented to the Personnel and Finance Committee. And what the Personnel and Finance Committee does is after they do their deliberations and their work, they will present an amendment to the entire county board for the operating in capital budgets. And that amendment is their recommendation. And then supervisors have an opportunity to amend that amendment. But in general, once the work is done in the personnel and finance committees, they're a really great committee. They have a really great committee chair, Liz Doyle. And the work that they do is very thorough. So in general, when they present their amendment to the county board, it's very well received. So tonight I'm going to be presenting this to that personal and finance committee and uh, looking forward to having that that conversation with committee members tonight.
2: Thank you Gren, for agreeing to speak with me supervisor Chavla. Yeah.
0: That was Supervisor Yogesh Chavla of Madison's Near East Side, who is looking to amend the county's 2024 budget to make sure that Henry Vilas Zoo fundraises enough money for their renovation plans. And we meant to l- let you know in earlier in our show, but an unofficial tricky treating hours here in Madison are from 4 to 8 p.m. Don't forget about safety. Remember to make sure your costume is visible to vehicles and others and doesn't impede movement. Carry a flashlight and stay on the sidewalks. <laughs>
1: The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thank you for joining us.
0: On October 25th, the Wisconsin Natural Resources Board approved the DNR's 2023 Wolf Management Plan and sent the Associated Rules Package to Governor Tony Evers for signature. On today's edition of the 8 O'Clock Buzz, host Brian Standing spoke to wildlife biologist and activist Adrian Wid. Wid with Ivan to get his perspective on the update plan.
6: Here with a reaction to the DNR's latest effort is Adrian Whiteeven, a certified wildlife biologist, chair of the Timberwolf Alliance, and co-chair of the Wildlife Working Group of Wisconsin Green Fire. Adrian, welcome back to the Eight O'clock Buzz.
4: Thank you for having me, Brian.
6: Now, we had you on the show about a year ago when the wolf management plan was still working its way through DNR. And at the time, you said that you felt that the DNR basically did it right, that this time they they got the, the management plan in accordance with sort of ecological and biological principles. Do you still feel that way a year later with the package that the Natural Resources Board has just passed?
4: Yes, we are very pleased with the wolf plan that DNR was able to pass uh, with the Natural Resource Board this week. It has very good elements in it to maintain healthy wolf population. There's a good emphasis on the ecological benefits of wolves. The way the plan is put together, it, it's, uh, it really follows the science very well.
6: Now, one of the things that's been controversial about this plan from some circles is that there's uh, there was no identified population target for the gray wolf population in Wisconsin. Why is that? And why is that controversial?
4: Well, in the earlier plan that when I headed up the wolf program in 1999, we developed a wolf plan which had a management goal of 350 wolves. And at the time, there were less than 200 wolves in Wisconsin. And that goal to many people became a cap they saw in the wolf population. And many groups wanted to return to that 350 goal as a cap. In other words, remove about two-thirds of the wolf population. Other groups were totally opposed to that because obviously you're eliminating a lot of wolves from the landscape and felt that there wasn't a need for any kind of a cap any longer and allow the wolf population to kind of fluctuate more naturally. So the department has kind of taken a road where the general direction they're going, but in some areas there may be some attempts to reduce the wolf population to maintain better tolerance of wolves and maintain lower levels of conflicts. But in general, there's a, more of an emphasis on the ecological benefits and less on trying to get to some number. Which is a better way to go as long as the wolf population is maintained at healthy population levels And that's that's the direction the department is going.
6: Are wolf hunts legal in Wisconsin right now?
4: They are not right now because wolves are, again, on the federal endangered species list. There was only one really hastily run wolf hunt. There were three wolf hunts done between 2012-2014. Wolves went back on the endangered species list at the end of 2014. They were delisted in 2021 and there was a hasty wolf hunt established in February of 2021. There were plans to hold a wolf hunt in the fall of 2021, but because of a court order, that was not allowed, and they went back on the endangered species list again in uh, February of 2022. So they currently are back on the federal endangered species list, which does not allow the state to hold a wolf hunting season.
6: So what is the significance of the wolf management plan, given that hunting, lethal management of wolves, is currently prohibited?
4: The plan does explain how wolves will be managed once they are again delisted, and there's anticipation that will likely occur again. Wolves are far above the levels that were considered necessary for recovering the wolf population, so it's probably just a matter of time that wolves will again be delisted. And then the state law, which the DNR can't change, uh, requires uh, that there shall be a wolf hunting season. The department has done a very good job in making sure that wolf hunting season is not detrimental to the wolf population. And so that we can maintain, continue to maintain healthy population of wolves, especially across areas of highly suitable wolf habitat. There might be some reduction of wolves in areas where there is more marginal habitat as a result of the hunting and trapping season. But in general, this plan will allow the state to continue to maintain a healthy wolf population.
6: One of the things that's been controversial about wolf hunts in the past is the use of dogs to hunt wolves and particularly dogs that trespass over private property in order to track down a a wolf. If the wolf is delisted by the federal government, what changes to dog hunting are in the wolf management plan?
4: Well, as the the law that is written that requires a wolf hunting season also includes that dogs will be used for hunting wolves, but the wolf hunting season starts the first Saturday of November, and the use of dogs is not authorized until the end of the firearm deer season, so that would be the end of November, early December. With the earlier starting date of the wolf hunt, probably most areas would have a lot less opportunity for using dogs. And when wolf hunting was done and trapping was done in 2013 and 14, most of the zones were closed before the opportunity to use hounds was allowed. So the use of dogs in those hunts was very minimum. In 2021, because the wolf hunt was held in February, well after the end of the firearm deer season, the whole state was open up to the use of dogs. So if the seasons are run at that earlier time period, most zones will probably be closed to hound hunting. The other thing that the plan does include is... Uh, allowance of training season for dogs to be used for, for training on wolves and that also only authorized after the firearm deer season and only if a specific zone is open to the hunting of wolves so the plan does not eliminate the use of hounds but the way it's designed it probably will minimize the level of use of hounds for hunting wolves
6: and can private landowners exclude hounds from their property from people from hunting with hounds on their property
4: Yes, private landowners have authority to prevent any kind of trespassing, and people running dogs through their property without their permission is a form of trespassing.
6: So we've talked a a bit about some of the, at this point, theoretical wolf hunts and what that would entail. Are there things in the wolf management plan that talk about other protections for wolves or management in terms of habitat or, or things like that?
4: It does. One of the things that the plan especially emphasizes is the protection of wolf den sites, Uh, While that's been identified previously, this plan goes beyond and and actually uh, creates a part of the law that protects the wolf den sites if they're occupied by wolves. There's also recommendations which have been used in the past as recommending land agencies to minimize additional road development to maintain areas of wild lands, and just, again, emphasis on the fact that wolves are protected and that any illegal killing of wolves will be prosecuted and investigated. So, yeah, there's... still very high levels of protection of wolves, even if they are a delisted species. Only the people with hunting permits during those time periods are allowed to kill wolves, so they still are a highly protected species.
6: And what are some of the ecological benefits of having wolves on the landscape?
4: We're learning more about that all the time, and we've studies have been, that have been done in Wisconsin and, and in Michigan have shown that there's less browsing by deer on understory plants because wolves kind of keep the deer moved around. There's a greater diversity of understory plants, wildflowers in the forest uh, where the middle of wolf pack areas. We're finding that counties that have wolf packs tend to have fewer vehicle collisions by deer because wolves kind of keep the deer moving around and discourage them. They're spending a lot of time at the edge of the forest where they're more vulnerable to being chased by wolves. So we are seeing a variety of things. Uh, Wisconsin, as you know, in your area, there's a high outbreak of chronic wasting disease in the deer herd. We're not seeing that in deer in wolf pack areas. So it appears that wolves, because they pick off weaker animals, less suited animals, are able to reduce the spread of chronic wasting disease. We see greater health of the deer population because of the presence of wolves.
6: Alright, we've been speaking with wildlife biologist Adrian Whiteeven, chair of the Timberwolf Alliance. For more information about the Wisconsin Wolf Management Plan go to dnr.wisconsin.gov. Adrian, thanks for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz.
4: Thank you for having me, Brian.
1: On November 3rd, 1979, members of the Ku Klux Klan and the American Nazi Party killed five participants in the Communist Workers' Party's Death to the Klan march in Greensboro, North Carolina. Feature contributor Harry Richardson marks that upcoming anniversary on this week's edition of Past Isn't Past.
0: For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time, for our brothers
7: and our sisters up and down that picket line, for the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long, for the union.
8: This Friday, November third, is the anniversary of the Greensboro massacre in 1979 in North Carolina. Members of the Maoist Communist Workers Party (CWP) had gathered for a "Death to the Klan" rally at Morningside Homes, a mostly African American housing project. As dozens of CWP activists and allies prepared to march on City Hall, vehicles filled with Klansmen and Nazis pulled up as the protesters stood their ground. A man in a yellow pickup truck yelled, You asked for the Klan, now you've got him. What happened in the next 88 seconds still reverberates to this day. White supremacists began firing pistols, rifles, and shotguns, killing five people, all communists, in broad daylight, and wounding ten others. The event was caught on video camera, but no police were present. The Greensboro Massacre was the coming out bloodbath for the white nationalist movement that is still upending our politics today. Today, white nationalism is closer to the mainstream of American politics politics than ever before, encouraged by the rise of Trump. The overwhelming majority of extremist murders in the U.S. in 2018 were perpetrated by the far right, according to the Anti-Defamation League, and the trend has only grown since then. The story of the Greensboro Massacre really begins earlier that summer, when the Klan tried to screen the racist 1915 film, The Birth of a Nation. But before they could show the film, more than 100 communist-led demonstrators marched on the building chanting, Death to the Klan. 20 Klansmen stood outside the building, rifles drawn, with the police between the two groups. When a police officer whispered to a Klan leader that if they fired, they would likely hit the police, the Klan withdrew. Protesters cheered and burned a pair of Confederate flags. The screening was canceled, and the Klan vowed revenge. Next, the Klan and Nazis made a plan to go to Greensboro. At least three different North Carolina white supremacist groups agreed to join them. In one Klan meeting, a local Klan leader declared that if they cared about their children, they would, quote, kill a hundred N-word and leave them dead in the streets, end quote. A police and FBI informer was in the meeting and notified Greensboro police that the Klan was coming to town. On the morning of November 3rd, the informer called again to report that three dozen white supremacists were gathering at a Klansman's house near the march site. A little later, he called again to say the home was full of weapons. The police shift commander wasn't informed of the calls. In his daily briefing, he just reminded his police of the parade permit's noon start time. The officers could get breakfast, so long as they were on the parade route by 11.30. But when a Greensboro police detective saw Klansmen and Nazis headed to town, he called police headquarters to ask if tactical units were in place. His supervisor, showing no particular concern, replied that there was still another 14 minutes by my watch for breakfast. The rallyers started gathering at 11 a.m., but at 11.22 a.m., a frightening message came via CB radio. The Klansmen were coming. Before police arrived, the Klan's cars came. Protesters banged on the windows. The eight cars stopped, and the Klansmen and Nazis pulled out their weapons. They fired several shots before CW peers returned fire, but already four protesters had been killed along with a member's spouse. Twelve were wounded, including two cameramen and a Klansman. The police arrived too late. There were three trials related to the tragedy. In the first state trial, an all-white jury believed the Klansman's self-defense plea, despite graphic video evidence to the contrary. The second trial, in 1980, was in federal court over alleged civil rights violations, but the charges were again rejected, again by an all-white jury. A third trial in 1984 for civil rights violations ended in an acquittal as well. A 1980 civil suit alleged that law enforcement knew the Klan's violent plans but failed to protect protesters. The suit named police, city officials, Klansmen, Nazis, an ATF and a police informant and was on behalf of the non-CWP person murdered. Two survivors were awarded $350,000 against the city, Klan, and Nazis. In 2004, locals formed a Greensboro Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which placed most of the blame for the violence on the Klan and Nazis. They ruled that the CWP's use of guns was self-defense. It also noted the police and FBI had a paid informant and knew of the Klan's and Nazis' violent plans. In 2009, the city council issued a statement of regret for the Greensboro Massacre. In 2015, a city marker went up acknowledging the tragedy. In 2020, the city council apologized for the tragedy and set up a scholarship in the name of the victims. And that is our story for today. For The Past and the Past, I'm Harry Richardson.
1: This week, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new crime dramas. Oh, sorry, not new crime dramas, just crime dramas. First up is The Parallax View, a Warren Beatty film from 1974. It's screening at the Chazen as part of a series that will continue through November. Second is Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese's much-anticipated adaptation of David Grant's nonfiction book. Grant spends more time documenting the 1920s FBI investigation, while Scorsese puts the spotlight on Ernest Barcart, a white man who was tied to a number of murders in Oklahoma's, Oklahoma's Osage community and within his own family.
7: I see him!
8: That was clipped from the trailer for The Parallax View, a scary 1974 conspiracy thriller directed by Alan Pakula. It's part of a series at the Chazen on the UW campus called Cinema in the Shadow of the JFK Assassination. I saw this film when it first came out, and I think it stands up pretty well. Our story opens with the assassination of a Kennedy-esque senator on the top of the Seattle Space Needle. Police give chase, but the suspect falls to his death. Enter our hero, Joseph Frady, the great Warren Beatty, as an ambitious reporter prone to see conspiracies. Several years have passed, and a panicked reporter, Lee Carter, Paul Apprentice, tries to convince Freddie that 12 assassination witnesses are being murdered one at a time for something they have seen, and she is next. Freddie dismisses her concern. Tragically, the next scene shows a sterile morgue with Carter's body. The coroner is convinced it was suicide. Freddie is belatedly convinced she was right, and goes off in pursuit of the senator's top aide, who Carter was certain could break the conspiracy open. Freddie tracks down the senator's aide, but the meeting ends terribly. He follows up other leads, ending up in the wild backcountry, finally stumbling on a clue that points to the Parallax Corporation and our film's climactic conclusion. The film is based on a compelling tension-filled script by David Giller and Lorenzo Semple Jr. There's an exceptional score by Michael Small and an eye-catching cinematography by Gordon Willis. The other films in the series will be shown on consecutive Sundays at the Chazen at 2 p.m. on the UW campus. October 29th, Winter Kills, 1979, another conspiracy movie. This one has a fine cast led by Jeff Bridges, has good reviews, but it's the film on the list I've never heard of. The following Sunday, November 12th, features In the Line of Fire, 1993, a really good thriller with Clint Eastwood, John Malkovich, and Rene Rousseau. Eastwood plays a Secret Service agent haunted by his failure to protect President Kennedy in 1963. The series concludes November 19th with a classic conspiracy movie, the 1991 film JFK, directed by Oliver Stone. Up next, another tale of murder and conspiracy from an earlier era.
4: Those sisters took care of one another when no one else does.
1: Police send help. There's murder in the house, The police do nothing.
4: It's a powerful historical movie about love and trust and, of course, family.
8: That was a clip from the trailer for the highly anticipated new film, Killers of the Flower Moon, co-written and directed by Martin Scorsese. This is a powerful film worth seeing on the big screen thanks to the work of cinematographer Rodrigo Prieto. This is an epic story filmed in northern Oklahoma, where the original story took place in the 20s. It is based on the book Killers of the Flower Moon, the Osage Murders, and the Birth of the FBI by David Gran in 2017. The movie, co-written with Eric Roth, drops the FBI part, focusing on what happens to the Osage people after they discover oil on their reservation. The FBI comes in towards the end. The members of the tribe own the land and share equally in the oil money, but have been and generally ruled Incompetent through a federal law set up to help them manage their wealth. Those managers are local wealthy white businessmen, likely taking their own cut along the way. Each tribal member has head rights to their shares, which can't be sold away, only inherited, which helps set in motion a series of murders by white men, usually of Indian women, that they have married for the oil money. The movie is largely told from the point of view of Ernest Burkhart, Leonardo DiCaprio. Burkhart is a newly discharged World War I vet who has come to town to work for his wealthy uncle. He isn't too bright and is easily manipulated by his scheming uncle, William King Hale, Robert De Niro. He becomes a driver for wealthy local Indians, meets and falls in love with Molly Kyle, a great lily Gladstone. Early on, their flirtations acknowledge the economic aspect of the relationship, but they really do seem to love each other. Scorsese has told a grim, bloody tale of white people's sin, killing Native Americans. Their other sin, enslaving and killing African Americans as a worthy subject too. Osage tribal member writer Joel Robinson says in Slate that the story is not told as the Osage would have told it but says he never saw a film that so immerses itself in a culture like this one did with ours. He was disappointed that the film didn't center on Molly but acknowledged that no one is handing out Scorsese money to an Osage filmmaker right now He hopes that movie will be made from the Charles H. Redcorn novel, A Pipe for February, which tells this story from the native perspective. He thought the movie's ending was perfect, though, and that maybe this was the best story that Scorsese, as a white person, could tell. I hope to see the film Robinson envisions maybe as a double feature with killers. This is a great film, one of my favorites of the year. I highly recommend it. For W.T.'s Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson.
1: More than 70 utility companies, including Wisconsin's largest utility, are falling behind in investing in clean energy, despite the availability of historic levels of federal funding to do so. This, according to a new Sierra Club report. Mike Moen of Wisconsin News Connection has the story.
7: New data from the Sierra Club shows some Wisconsin utilities are slow to reduce fossil fuel dependence, while others are improving their efforts. Evaluations included two subsidiaries under Weck Energy. One of them was the state's largest utility, We Energies, which received a D grade for plans to transition to wind, solar, and other renewables. The other subsidiary, Wisconsin Public Service, received the same grade, although it was an improvement over last year. Sierra Club's Wisconsin director, Elizabeth Ward, says the actions of the parent company don't match its public messaging.
0: WEC
3: has some pretty lofty goals stated about going coal-free, but when we look at what they're actually doing, they're talking about keeping their Oak Creek coal plants online even longer, and they're proposing more gas throughout the state.
7: WEC Energy did not respond to a request for comment, but on its website, It maintains it will be in a position to eliminate coal as an energy source by 2035. Under the Paris Agreement, the U.S. has committed to slashing greenhouse gas pollution in half by 2030 relative to 2005 levels. Meanwhile, Wisconsin's Alliant Energy improved from a D grade to a B amid investments in solar and battery storage. The Federal Inflation Reduction Act passed last year made hundreds of billions of dollars available to companies to address climate change. But Sierra Club Energy Campaigns analyst Noah Verbeek says utilities continue to delay a transition to clean energy because of factors like executive pay being linked to fossil fuel-based asset performance.
0: And we're really hoping to see a lot more progress this year, especially given all of the federal legislation that has passed and all of the new money that is available to really encourage these utilities to make this shift.
7: He adds nationwide people of color and low-income communities continue to be exposed to higher levels of dangerous particulate matter pollution than other groups and are at greater risk for developing diseases linked to chronically breathing dirty air. This is Mike Bowen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. And that does it for our show.
0: Thanks for listening to WORT's
7: Live Local News
0: at 6. Your reporter tonight was Charlie Belosky. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brian Standing from the 8 O'Clock Buzz, and Wisconsin News Connection's Mike Moen. Victor Calzoni engineered the show tonight, Faye Parks produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director right here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz.
1: And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.